If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. The stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You don't have to dip forever. You know that rhyme. You don't have to smoke forever. And the reason I say it like that is I have been that guy. I've been that guy. I dipped for so long. And what would happen is I would decide I'm going to quit. That's bad for me. I'm going to quit. I'm a man. I don't need any help. I'm just going to quit cold turkey. And I would fail time and time and time again. I tried things like the patch. That didn't work. Gum, sunflower seeds. I, I tried it all. It's just a matter of finding the right thing to help you quit. That's Jake's Mint Chew. Go, put in your dip. Just make sure it's Jake's Mint Chew. It's tobacco-free. It's nicotine-free. It's even sugar-free. And I highly recommend, just a personal choice, I highly recommend their CBD pouches because it really helps take that extra edge off. Get a jakesmintchew.com. That's jakesmintchew.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE at checkout. When you do that, get 10% off. This is the Jesse Kelly show. Has the United States of America known hard times? Now, it's easy to say what we all want to say to that, right? It's, um, yeah, we've been to war. We've seen great depressions. 
At one point in time, we flat out divided up as a nation and started shooting, blowing up, and stabbing each other. But again, remember, everything in life, everything in life is relative. Everything. If I offered you a piece of bread with a little bit of mold on it for breakfast, you would want to vomit into the trash can and you'd throw it on the ground. If I locked you in solitary confinement with no food for five days and then offered you that same piece of bread, you would scarf it down without a second thought. Everything is relative in life. Do you know what the total number of United States deaths in war is? Total of every war we've ever fought? A little over a million. 1.3, 1.4 million, roughly. Do you know that more people died in one battle, in the Battle of Stalingrad, than that? Significantly more? One battle. The German-Soviet portion of World War II is the most undertold, undersold military campaign ever. And it's easy to, to know why here in the United States of America because, well, they both suck. I mean, at least for World War II reasons, right? I mean, who, who are you supposed to be rooting for? Well, I don't think I'll root for the Nazis, but, I mean, Stalin's killing 50 million of his own people. and You know what? I'm just going to sit this one out. I don't care. And that's fine. I'm not asking you to be personally invested. I'm not. But understand something. There is no second place. There is that military campaign, and then there is about a 30,000-foot drop before you get to the next military campaign at any moment throughout the history of the world before you get to that kind of carnage again. I mentioned the Battle of Stalingrad People, that's one, one small aspect of that living hell. Is that too far? Remember I said 1.4 million Americans have died ever. Do you know how many Russians died in World War II? 10 million. That's just the soldiers. Oh, the civilians? It was 20 or 30 million more. That number is so big that it becomes small, meaning it's so large you can't wrap your mind around that kind of death. That kind of. Ma- and look, the Germans had it bad too. You know how many Germans actually died on the Western Front? Three or 400,000. You know how many died in Russia? 2.7 million, 3 million. Just just carnage like like the world has never seen. And I need you to understand that before I talk about what we're going to talk about today. Because Germany invading Russia didn't just happen out of nowhere. 
It didn't only happen because Hitler was an expansionist and hated the communists badly and wanted the oil fields of Russia, although that all that factored in. It, it, it happened for, well, the, the catalyst of it was something different. Let's talk about Finland. Don't worry. I'll connect everything here in just a second. Finland is an interesting place. You see, they were under Sweden forever. And then they were under Russia forever. And then World War I happens, and Russia has a big communist revolution at the end of World War I. And finally, Finland, during all that revolution stuff, they broke off relatively bloodlessly. And all of a sudden, they are their own place. And to give you some sort of reference to Finland, because I realize not everybody's staring at a map, you can picture big old Russia. Everybody knows what that is. And the far, far, far northeast corner of Finland, or of Russia, that's Finland. Not a tiny country. I mean, it looks like Rhode Island compared to Russia. But, you know, a country. World War II breaks out. Everybody knows this story. Hitler starts slapping everybody around. Stalin, who's just as big of a scumbag, says, well, I want some other stuff too. Hitler and Stalin just decide to agree that we're just going to leave each other alone. Look, I don't like you. You don't like me. Hitler was busy killing all the commies in his own country. Hitler hated commies. And they just like, hey, look, look, we have all these Eastern European countries in between us. Instead of fighting, why don't we just divide them up? We'll leave each other alone. And they did. And Hitler just started crushing everybody. And Stalin just started mowing down everybody. Only most of them, most of the countries that Stalin took in Eastern Europe, they just laid down. And I'm not insulting anybody. When Stalin shows up at your doorstep, uh, we're coming in. You're going to let us or are we going to kill everyone? And he has three, four million troops, tanks, planes, and you've got... 30,000, you do what you have to do to save your people's lives. Unless you're Finland. Because Stalin eventually came knocking on Finland's door. Hey, all that land you took, we want it all back. That, that, ind- that independent country you have, uh, we, want, we want big portions of that now. Just because they're going to be advantageous for us. So go ahead and hand those over. Finland turns around and looks at their army of about 300,000. And they look at the million men Stalin is about to bring in and they say, no, I don't think we will. And there were, I mean, they tried diplomatically several times. The Russians were like, wait, what? The diplomatic version of you, you're not serious, right? And Finland said, oh, 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 we're very serious. No, you can't have it. So in the Soviets came. Now I need you to understand this because this is gonna this is gonna play a part here. It is December in Finland. Remember I said Finland is in the northeast corner of Russia. It's also a uniquely cold winter, but it's uniquely cold there all the time. And cold is one of those things that's difficult 
It's difficult to explain unless you're in the middle of it, and it's difficult to explain the differences in it unless you've been through it. So let me do the best that I can. 40 degrees below zero. 40 degrees below zero. I grew up for much of my life in Montana, where we experienced 20, rarely 30 below. I think we got down there a couple times. 10 below is very, very cold. You need thick clothes on. You definitely need a hat and gloves. You need to be careful. 20 below, it's like descending into hell. 30 below, you're breathing razor blades into your lungs. You want to know what happens at 40 below? Oh, I'm about to tell you. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. There are pictures of this if you've already had breakfast or, well, let's just be honest. If you're within a 20 or 30 minute window of eating before or after, don't look. But there are pictures of what I'm about to tell you. At 40 below zero, without extreme winter clothing on, which of course the Finns had because this is their home, the blood circulating in your body, your blood pressure is the only thing keeping your body alive. And what I mean, what I mean by that is if you are a Russian soldier and it's 40 degrees below zero as you invade Finland and you get shot in, say, the arm, not even the heart, you get shot in the arm. You know what happens when you get shot? You lose blood. You essentially punch a hole in a tire. And what happens is your blood pressure goes down. Fatal wound or not. At 40 degrees below zero, you freeze to death in place almost instantly. Shot in the arm. Frozen solid. That fast. To give you some idea of what that looks like, you can take a gigantic steaming hot cup of coffee at 40 below zero, if you can even get this far, but walk away from the coffee machine, throw the cup of coffee in the air, and not a drop of that coffee will hit the ground. It will freeze and turn into coffee mist right away. Now, this is what the Russian troops are facing, and because Stalin had previously fired all the capable generals, because Stalin was purging and killing every political enemy, they march into Finland for what 
forever will be known as the Winter War. Understand this about the Finns. Not only did they know the terrain, but there is, and you will see this consistently while I do my history stories on the show, this is just a consistent theme because it's reality. I need you to picture something. I need you to picture you're in a gigantic field. And sitting beside you on a table is some boxing gloves, a pair of brass knuckles, a sword, and a machine gun. And standing 40 feet away from you is another person, a dude. He has a table beside him with the exact same things. Boxing gloves, brass knuckles, sword, and a machine gun. And you were told, hey, you two, go ahead and decide what you want to do, but you've got to fight. What are you probably going to do? What's a normal human response there? I'm probably going to look across at the guy and be like, well, I mean, let's just grab the boxing gloves and trade a couple punches and call her a day, right? Little, little black guy at the end of the world, call her a day. Now, I want you to picture that exact same scenario. You're sitting there, table, boxing gloves, brass knuckles, sword, machine gun. He's standing across from you, boxing gloves, brass knuckles, sword, machine gun. And that same instructor, that same voice comes down and he talks to you and he says, now look behind you and you turn around and there's your home and there's your wife on the front porch and there are your children and you're staring in their faces and the instructor says to you, If that guy gets by you, he's coming for them. Now which one do you grab? Yeah, me too. Brother, sorry, but you got to go. When you were defending your own country, when you were defending your own towns, your own streets, your own wife, your own kids, your own church, your own school, your own restaurant, your own priest. You fight in a different way. And you will see this throughout history. You fight in a different way. And the Finns fought in a different way. How that looks in a, in a war like that, let's say you're Russians, and I'll get to this in a moment, how things like this came about. And let's say you're getting ambushed by a bunch of these crazy Finns who were all dressed in white and you couldn't see them and they were super fast. And you were a Russian and you are you're hundreds of miles, if not a thousand miles away from home. You're invading some country you don't really give a crap about and bullets are flying your way and you're dug in all around you with your buddies And what should you do when you get ambushed there? Well, the thing to do in an ambush is not lay down, not run away, because they plan for that. The thing to do is stand up and return fire as safely as humanly possible. Charge into the teeth of it, because it's the last thing they're ready for. What do you do if you're on someone else's country? Uh, I actually think I'll just keep my head down for a little while. Not my country. What do you do if your wife and kids are behind you? You throw yourself into the maw. 
And so the Russians, with three times the amount of troops, oh, and I didn't even mention the supplies. Did did I mention the supplies here? You want to know what they were? What people were actually? (laughs) The Russians had about somewhere, they don't even know the exact numbers, between three to 5,000 tanks, some say 6,000. The Finns had 32. The Russians had 3,800 planes. The Finns had 100. But, again, the wife, the kids, the church, the school, all right behind the Finns, and they fought like demons. And the Russians, well, they weren't dressed for it. They had bad leadership. And they thought, because they were the Russians, that these Finns were just going to get rolled over, and the Finns did not get rolled over. And if you're a Finn, and you're facing down 5,000 tanks, and you don't have tanks of your own, well, we don't have an option just to let them through. We better figure something out. And guess what they came up with? What is known today as the Molotov cocktail. It was actually named after, I believe, the Soviets, one of their Soviet diplomats. His name was Molotov. And there are a million different ways you can make one. I'm not going to give you those instructions on national radio, but everybody knows what I'm talking about. We're talking about a rag stuffed in a bottle with some flammable liquid in the bottle. You light the rag, you throw it, it burns. Well, the Finns weren't just chucking them randomly. All those tanks, the Finns would lay down and hide in the snow. And the tanks would roll by and the Finns would get up and chuck that Molotov cocktail into the vent system of the Soviet tank, which would suck that gas-flammable liquid inside and blow the tank up. They would take logs and throw those logs in the tank tracks. The Soviets had two different ways into Finland, and Finland had very, very, very narrow, very rough roads. Logging roads. And the Soviets had to stick to those roads. Guess what the Finns didn't do? They didn't stick to the roads. So while you're a Soviet soldier with your head down and the biting wind cutting through you at 40 below and every breath feels like you're breathing in icy razor blades, you are constantly getting shot in the face by people wearing all white on skis. Hang on. The Jesse Kelly Show. You see, the Finns, they knew there was really only two little narrow ways into their country, and the Russians stretched out for over 30 miles in single file or double file lines along these crappy log roads with thick forests and snow drifts and freezing cold all around them. And you know what the Finns did? 
They just came in from the woods on skis. Let's be really, really generous and say you can walk three miles an hour, four miles an hour in conditions like that. That's probably being generous, but I'm being rough about it. Cross-country skis, you're double that. Imagine facing an enemy twice as fast as you are. Now, don't get me wrong. The Russians won this war. They did. This little winter war. The Finns eventually were overwhelmed by Russian troop sizes and everything else. You know how many Finn casualties there were? 70,000. You know how many Russians it took to win that war and visit those 70,000 on the Finns? 350,000. Now, the reason I brought up Stalingrad and the Eastern Front and Germany's invasion of Russia during all this, before I talked to you about the Winter War, before I laid everything out, the reason I brought that up is, do you know what the catalyst was for Germany invading Russia? For 20 to 30 million Russian civilians dead, 10 million Russian troops, two, three, four million German. Do you know what? You know what the catalyst was for by far the biggest, goriest, most horrific military campaign ever? The Winter War. Hitler was obviously watching that very, very closely and said to himself, if the Finns can slap around the Russians, why would we wait? Let's just invade. You see, when you make mistakes as a nation, you don't often know while it's going on what the final body count is going to be, what the final reverberations of it are going to be once it's all settled down, once things all shake out, and you can't know. But think about this. Wrap your mind around this. Let's say you're a country that rhymes with Bina. Let's say you dislike the United States of America. Not exactly a secret. They have attacked us cyber-wise a million different times. We continue to catch Chinese spies in this country all the time. Professors. A senator from the most powerful state in the union, Diane Feinstein, had her own driver as, as a was discovered as a Chinese spy forever. China has been moving aggressively, continuously on the world stage to be an imperial power, to have the yen take over the dollar. They want America down. In fact, they're fairly open about it. They've written books on it. They have a 25-year plan, a 50-year plan. So we know this is an enemy. We know they want us gone. We know that. That's not debatable. What's China watching and seeing right now? Let's just call China Germany in this situation. What's China watching us do? Do you think 
the United States of America deciding on its own. I don't care what other countries do. Don't tell me about Italy or anything else. Do you think the United States of America deciding on its own that the appropriate response to a virus is to destroy our economic system? Do you think the Chinese are looking at that and thinking to themselves, man, that's really smart. Or do you think they're looking to them, looking at that and thinking, we might have an opportunity here. What would you be thinking? Always, 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 as difficult as this is, and I admit it, it's difficult because we hate them, and we should. They're our enemy. But always put yourself in the enemy's shoes and try to see things the way he sees things. If you're China right now, driving in your car on the way to work or going home, put yourself in his shoes. You're in charge of China, and your job, one of your missions in life, is to bring down the United States of America. And you see a virus that has killed I mean, it's significant. What are we up to now? 12, 13, 14,000 Americans? Certainly deadly. It's certainly not pleasant. I'm not, would never say otherwise. It's terrible. But you look and say, well, wait a minute. They just, they just shut down their economy over that? Maybe we, and understand this, they look at things through a longer lens than we do over there. They're infamous for it. So many countries just have a different culture in that way. Afghanistan, China, they just look at things through a longer lens. They don't look at, well, we have to take down America. We have to do it in five years. They don't look at it that way. It's a lifetime for them. It's a commitment. What would you do if if you're them after this? Let things die down. Let things shake out. Keep churning out cheap Chinese-made crap. And if I were them, I'd be building the next one in a lab somewhere. And you know what? We're not going to know if that's what they're doing or if that was their plan for years, maybe not even in my lifetime. But I'll tell you what, that's what I'd be doing. That's what I'd be doing. We need to be... Very careful what we have going on right now. You see, we have brand new revisions today. I know. Stop me if you've heard this before. We have brand new revisions shaving another 20,000 off the death estimates for this COVID-19. And what I will not abide from anybody is holding up a body. You all remember, right? I'm sure, I'm sure everybody remembers there. There's this piece of, Hey, you see this? We have a model. This is, this is the Imperial college model. We have a model. This is the model. This is our model. You see what, this is what the virus is going to do. This is the model. And this model says we're going to kill one to 2 million Americans with this 50 million worldwide. That's what the model said. I'm not making that up. That's what the model said. 50 million worldwide, one to 2 million Americans. We even had that Dr. Burks on TV. I mean, what was it, last week? Standing up and saying, we could still see one to two million dead Americans. Unless, unless we mitigate, unless we mitigate, and if we mitigate, I hope we can get that number to 100 or 200,000. I didn't make that up. She said that. 
She said that on national television. She pointed at the American people and said, if you do everything right, still 100,000 or 200,000 of you are going to die. Oh, and she even scolded everyone at the same time and said, but you're not doing everything right. You're not doing it. So we were told specifically we weren't mitigating right. We were told 2 million people were going to die if we didn't mitigate right. We were told best case scenario, 100 to 200,000, and that's down to 60,000. And people, their livelihoods are being napalmed. I'll tell you about that. Hang on. The Jesse Kelly Show. On the Jordan Harbinger Show, you'll hear amazing stories from people that have lived them, from spies to CEOs, even an undercover agent who infiltrated the Gambino crime family. You're about to hear a preview of the Jordan Harbinger Show with Jack Garcia, who did just that. My career was 24 out of 26 years was solely dedicated working undercover. I walk in, I'm in the bar. Now there's a barmaid there, good looking young lady. She's serving me drink. Hey, what would you like? I usually my drink was give me a kettle, one martini, three olives, glass of water on the side. I finish the drink. The guys come in. I'm gonna go, go in my pocket, take out the big wad of money. Bam! I give her a hundred dollars. If you're with the mob, I say, hey Jordan, you're on record with us. That means we protect you. Nobody could shake you down. We could shake you down, but you're on record with us. For more on how Jack became so trusted in the highest levels of the Gambino organization, check out episode 392 of The Jordan Harbinger Show. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Jack Armstrong. He's Joe Getty. We're the Armstrong and Getty Show. We cover the stories the mainstream media ignores. Stories that are important to your life and important to the world. The election, of course. The many trials of Donald Trump. Couple of wars. Gender-bending madness. Why are kids looking at so much social media? And we bring you the stories the mainstream media is on. But we do it without the left-wing media spin. Listen to Armstrong and Getty On Demand on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Armstrong and Getty Show to start listening.